The Natural Man podcast is intended as general information for educational purposes only. It should not be construed as medical advice or a diagnosis of any kind, or as a substitute for medical treatment. The information provided in this podcast is not meant to replace the advice of or treatment by any physician. Do not rely upon any information to replace consultations or advice received by qualified health professionals regarding your own specific situation. If you suspect that you have a medical problem, you are urged to seek competent medical help. The Natural Man podcast and its representatives and agents disclaim any liability for any negative or other medical or other outcomes that may occur as a result of acting on or not acting on any information contained in the podcast. The views and opinions expressed by the host and all guests are their own, and their appearance on this podcast and at the website of the Natural Man Podcast does not imply any endorsement of them or any entity they represent, and does not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of the Natural Man Podcast. This is the Natural Man Podcast. Welcome back to the podcast. My name is Mike C. This is an exploration into health, wellness, and discovering new ways to improve one's vitality. Today, I am pleased to have a returning guest who we had on a while back to talk about her research in insomnia. She attended college in California and medical school at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, where she received her MD degree. She completed a neurology residency in 1989 at the Harvard-affiliated Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston, and from 1991 to 2004, she practiced as a general neurologist in the San Francisco Bay Area. In 2016, she retired from office practice to have more time to teach. She currently divides her time between teaching individuals through virtual coaching sessions and teaching clinicians from a wide variety of medical and dental fields. Her popular courses and lectures help clinicians improve their patients' health and well-being by improving their sleep. We are excited to welcome back to the podcast Dr. Stasha Gomanak. Dr. Gomanak, so kind of you to join us again. Hi, Mike. I'm really thrilled to be invited back. So in the last episode you appeared here, um, we talked a lot about vitamin D and sleep. And in that conversation, you also touched on B vitamins and how they're also essential for optimal sleep. And I want to explore that a little bit further with you today. I know you've done extensive research on this and you regularly lecture to other physicians. So how do B vitamins fit into the overall sleep picture in relation to D? And how did you stumble upon all this? Thank you for asking. And it really was a matter of stumbling on it. So the first thing that happened was I was desperate. All my patients were desperate. Their sleep wasn't getting better. We had CPAP and sleeping pills. And I actually, by accident, stumbled upon the B12 being low in one of my patients who had a profoundly abnormal sleep study. So she was young, healthy, 18-year-old. Her sleep study showed she had 10 solid hours of sleep, but no deep sleep. So deep sleep is a phase. There are two separate ones that we in the sleep industry call deep. One of them is called slow wave sleep because that's what the little EEG waves look like. They're slow. The second deep sleep phase is rapid eye movement sleep. Both of those, we get paralyzed while we're doing them. So you can think of those as the restorative phase of sleep. It's not that we're not doing anything in light sleep. We're doing other things. But my, my experience with my patients was that if you don't have deep sleep on your sleep study, you're likely in there telling me you feel tired, not refreshed, or you have headaches, or you have something wrong with you. So 
It's not as simple as saying, I sleep. You really have to sleep and then feel good. And if you don't feel good, likely something's wrong with these deeper phases. So this young 18-year-old had a sleep study that showed she had no deep sleep. Absolutely none. She slept for 10 hours. She had a very low B12 level. And at the time, I had been doing that for five years. I had CPAP, I have sleeping pills, and I would have been interested in anything that seemed to be correlated, but particularly something that I'd never tried or thought about before. And because MDs are really trained away from vitamins, <clears throat> it's not that B12 isn't known to interact with sleep. It has lots of literature. B12 is well known to help sleep. I actually haven't gone down that path very deeply because there's already a lot of literature about it. So that was the first step into, oh, could abnormal sleep of various kinds be related to a deficiency state? So then what happened right after that is I just started to recommend B12 to people for their sleep. If they gave it as injections, <clears throat> they would get two good nights and then 28 bad ones. So it turns out we were taught to give once a month B12 injections, and it turns out that was not because of any intelligent choice about B12. It was because Medicare paid for it to be injected by your physician once a month. Well, it turns out Medicare doesn't pay for it anymore, <clears throat> and they've been giving them the little vials and the syringes. So my patients were coming back saying, well, I'm actually giving it once a week. And I would say, well, you're not supposed to give it once a week. And they would say, well, I do so much better when I give it once a week. So that's first, the first part. And you can't forget about B12 just because I'm going to spend all the rest of the time talking about the other Bs. So B12 is a major player, and it probably is that all of the Bs play a role in, in sleep. But what actually happened to me was I was doing B12 levels. I threw in a vitamin D level. The Ds were low in everyone. And so we started on this path, which was really... Anyone who had a B12 level below 500 got B12, and I was then giving it orally every day. Anyone who had a low D, we learned how to give D. So for two years, I'm helping the sleep primarily with giving D. Then at the end of two years, we had all gotten better, and then we got worse again. So I published an article with another scientist named Walter Stumpf that pardon me, described that it was my opinion that based on this clinical response of being able to find a D level, a blood level, not a dose, that made the sleep better, and Dr. Stump's findings that there were vitamin D receptors all over the sleep switches that allow us to sleep, that vitamin D was a major player. Now, it was an interesting, exciting discovery, but by the time that article was published, I had already started to fail, and so had my patients. So I'm maintaining a D level of 65, which had made me better. My patients have gotten really good at how to do their D levels, they're maintaining them, but they start to come back saying, you know, last time I was here, my headaches were better, my sleep was better, but now my sleep is lousy, my D's 65, don't ask me again, it's fine, I just did it. My D's fine, but my headaches are worse, my sleep is worse, and you know, I never had joint pain before. Now I've got this diffuse joint pain, like my elbows, my wrists, my fingers. You know, this is a 40-year-old person. And my 
my primary is sending me to a rheumatologist. That made me very uncomfortable because I started to hear that from lots of my patients. I also had this very peculiar butt pain. Like when I would sit down on a chair at the end of the day, my butt would hurt, which is really peculiar because I'd been sitting on my butt for many, many years without any butt pain. I had not fallen down and bruised my butt bones. So what's up with this? And because I was doing something that was very unusual. So I'm really asking my patients to do something that's experimentation. I don't really know whether or not this D is going to have some longer term event. Okay. So I'm very uncomfortable with these reported pain complaints. And I'm thinking this is making me very nervous. And then I have two women who walk in the door within a month of each other. They've been my patients for several years, daily headache sufferers. They got better on D they both say the same thing to me. I have burning in my hands and feet. Very uncomfortable burning. And that is a very unusual thing. And I happen to be a neurologist who has a subspecialty interest in neuropathy, which is where burning in the hands and feet resides. And I have been doing this for 25 years by this point, And that is an extremely rare event. I probably only had two or three patients in the whole 25 years that had burning in the hands and feet together. Burning in the feet would come in and it usually responded to B12. These two are already on B12 and I know that their B12 blood levels are good. So I don't have a good answer for them. So that's making me extremely uncomfortable. And then one of my patients brings me a book uh, called The um, Pain-Free uh, Promise of Pantothenic Acid. It's a book written by a layperson in the 90s, and it talks about a B vitamin called pantothenic acid. It is not something I would have ever been interested in. She brought it to me because this woman who has rheumatoid arthritis is giving 400 milligrams of a B vitamin called B5 or pantothenic acid, to other people who have rheumatoid arthritis. And she's writing this book because she says on 400 milligrams of B5, my pain went away and my sleep got better. And so did theirs. So she's bringing it to me part really because of the sleep reference, because she knows I'm just completely focused on sleep. Well, in the meantime, I don't happen to have joint pain, but I've got this weird butt pain and all these people are complaining of <clears throat> joint pain. So I think, well, one, what are the references? So luckily she has references in this book. The references are to these studies that were done in the 1950s in this odd uh, little lab that was doing things that became quickly illegal. So they were doing experiments on convicts where they were actually force feeding, tube feeding them with this artificial diet. And they showed that if you block B5 by giving a specific blocker of this vitamin, you produce within two weeks trouble with the belly, insomnia, a puppet-like gait, and burning in the hands and feet. So I read this and go, oh, wow, this is really important. So something else is causing my patients to revert back to insomnia. It seems that I've made them B vitamin deficient. That, and I say that because there's been no change in their diet, okay? So the first big question is, how could it be that we went over a two-year span from being better to worse again, and why does it appear that my patients are manifesting a B vitamin deficiency state 
that I'm presuming is just from sleeping better. They're sleeping better. They're making more repairs. I don't know much about vitamins, but I do know that these B vitamins are completely intertwined with every single cellular repair that we do. You need them to make DNA, to make RNA, to make all the things that make the cell able to run itself and make its repairs. So there's sen it's sensible that making more repairs would use more bees, but we have been taught that the bees come from the food, number one. Number two, we've been taught that there aren't any stores of the bees. Well, it turns out both of those are completely incorrect. So in the background, I go and buy 400 milligrams of pantothenic acid for myself, and I buy B100. So the problem with bees is that the dogma is incorrect. So one, the only thing I remembered from medical school when I was standing in the, in the actual aisle looking at the bee complexes was that if you give one bee, you should give all of them. Because I had not had time to do any reading about it, I thought, uh-oh, what if I give this B5 and it's not right and I need to give all eight? At the time, I didn't even know how many there were. You know, It's very, very confusing nomenclature. There are really eight that we've recognized as being needed, we can't make them, etc. So they have to come from somewhere else. So one, you should have a, a stack that's called the B complex that has all eight. Well, so I stumble onto B100. B100 is just, doesn't matter who makes it. If it says B100 on the front, it's supposed to have 100 milligrams or 100 micrograms of all eight. So I go home and I start taking 400 milligrams of B5 and this B100. And for one week, I recommend that same regimen to all the patients who I see on that week who happen to have done D for two years with me, now are having these pain complaints. The two gals with the burning get that recommendation too. Unfortunately, by the end of the week, I realized that my restless legs, which is my major sleep problem, has become profoundly worse. So I think, oh, this is going to be just like D, where they tell you to do one thing, but it's not really the case, and the dose really does matter, and this is too big a dose, even though it was sitting innocently on the shelf. That's the major, that is the milligram dose that panathenic acid usually is available in the health food store. So I stop the 400 milligrams, and I go to B100, and Im immediately my sleep is much better, and my butt pain goes away in a day which was about the weirdest experience one can imagine, especially for a doctor, okay? They already think I'm crazy with this D stuff, and now I'm afraid to tell anyone this, all right? Now, I now have about 40 people who I've given this recommendation to who I'm dreading that they're going to come back and yell at me because I've just recommended to them something that was in the book. It's sitting in the health food store, but I had a feeling that the dose was too big based on my own self. And what actually happened was the patients came back, the two gals with the burning immediately two days later gone. So this is supportive of the fact that they, I, they had developed a B5 deficiency over two years of using D. Then the next thing that happened was most of the people yelled at me and said that 400 milligrams of B5, that nearly killed me. I, it made me so agitated. I was all revved up. I couldn't sleep at all. Now, what's weird about that? Number one, these are supposed to be vitamins. Like, they're completely innocent. You can't hurt anyone with them. I'm sorry, these people were pissed off. It was immediate. It was within hours of taking it. 
That is really weird. So one, these are not innocent chemicals. Two, there is something quite different about the population that this layperson was giving this prescription to. She had this wonderful response. That means there's something different about this patient group. And the only thing that's really different is they are on D and they've been on D for two years. It's acting as though there's a synergy in the activity between what D is doing in the brain and then when you add this B5 to it, okay? Now that took me several years to figure that out, but I'm gonna give you the final answer. And there is a extremely important synergy between these two chemicals. So one, the bad experience was extremely important because it proved that D was doing something in the brain that then made the brain want less B5 in response to that. And then the next question was, okay, I. I have no idea what dose to give of these other seven Bs, okay? I'm scared to death. Not being able to sleep and having terrible pain is just not something you want to mess with, okay? It's not like, oh, you might have a runny nose or something like that. No, I'm, I'm now giving eight chemicals and I don't have any idea what the dose should be. And the recommended dose online and every book is 400 milligrams. And it also says... Pantothenic acid deficiency does not exist because pantothenic acid is in every food. That's what it says in every textbook. Now, I just proved that that is not true. How do I know that it's not in the food? Because if it were in the food, we would have exactly the same reaction that we did to those pills. That means it's not in that form in the food. And there have been several biochemical assumptions made and that means when they made those assumptions that were really made in the 1980s, they stopped doing research on pantothenic acid. Once you start reading that, you just don't go down that path, okay? Now, it turns out that there are also articles from the 70s and 80s that show we absolutely do have body stores of B5. They also show we have body stores of B6 and B1 and vitamin C, okay? So, one, the dogmatic claim that I believe probably was based on B12 was that you could just give B12, we pee out the excess, you never have to worry about it. And that turns out not to be the case really, even for B12. Now, if you step back one minute, the next thing that happened was I'm all freaked out about what the doses should be because dosing turns out to be what I do. I'm not just prescribing vitamins, I'm prescribing drugs. These are acting just like drugs. So... My next claim is, well, if no one knows what the right doses are of these eight chemicals, because I don't trust anybody that's written it now, because they made this big error about something that's pivotal to our sleep and can make us agitated or calm, that's creepy. How on earth, one, would these people have become B deficient over two years if they were, it was really coming from the food? What if it's not coming for the food? And at this point, I start reading articles, and all of the articles starting in about the early 2012 are starting to say, well, every single one of the bees has a colonic bacteria source and a food source. So I read this, and I go, wait, these are eight chemicals. Like, uh, A, first there was A, and then there's eight things called B? How did that happen? What's up with that? And it took me several years before I made that connection, but the writers about the absorption of the bees, how they actually get into our gut, are writing that they're really two sources. Well, that kind of assumes that 
what if there's really only one source that really the bacteria of the microbiome, and the lucky thing for me was I'm not a GI expert. I wasn't writing about the microbiome, nor was I the least bit interested in it. But there's a huge body of literature coming out saying it's extremely important for you to have these four specific species or phyla, big groups of bacteria in your belly. So there are all these comments, even in the Economist magazine, a money-making journal. It's so important and so widespread that they're trying to actually educate the public. You're supposed to have these four phyla. Now, if we know that it's always these four phyla, why? Why always those four guys? What if they're all trading B vitamins? What if they actually came as an eight pack of chemicals? And if you look into the, the literature that's written about the discovery of the B vitamins, the original articles that were written in the 20s and 30s, all eight of these chemicals were described as bacterial growth factors first. So it was us looking at growing bacteria in a Petri dish realizing that what we put in the Petri dish was actually a yeast bacterial mixture that the scientist's wife had sitting on the drain board waiting to make bread. And he pours it in there and then he just lets the bacteria grow. And then they begin to purify these eight chemicals and realize, oh, these bacteria need this particular chemical and they're supplying each other. They are a symbiotic foursome that supply into their environment. So they secrete it out of their cell and then their neighboring bacteria takes it up and uses it. This is all over the GI literature now. The idea that we are symbiotic with our microbiome is, is a very well-established idea. It's unusual that I run into somebody who that doesn't make sense to. There are still some people who are old like me that haven't had that idea, but in the background, now I'm thinking, okay, this is really exciting because that means that if you get these four back in the belly, okay, lots of my patients at IBS, we've been doing probiotics. They didn't do anything. They cost me a lot of money, but they didn't change the IBS. And by the way, vitamin D didn't change the IBS either. So it was my belief that because IBS showed up on the planet around the same time as sleep apnea, fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue in the 1980s, that was the first time it started to be reported, that the D should have fixed it. And that was my first indication that, well, D might have been why the microbiome failed. So perhaps our sleep failed and our microbiome failed because the D was low. Perhaps D has always been a cofactor to the microbiome, which it is now the first article showing that in humans is in 2020. But the weird part for me was that giving the D back to the bugs did not bring back the four happy phyla because my patients still had IBS. That leaves me with, okay, now all my patients have got a GI tract that's flooded with D. There's lots of D down there. Now I've just added B100, which means I've added these really large doses. It's a dose that makes the nervous system happy. Remember that I said, I stop the 400 and immediately my sleep gets good and my pain goes away. That means my human nervous system is completely happy with B100. And that was the case for most of the other people who had been through this experiment. But now I'm thinking, you know, if what I'm doing is I'm kind of priming the pump, I'm adding all these growth factors. And if there are two or three or 10 representatives of each of those four phyla, and they get really happy, and now they have all their support, 
they have their B's, they have their D, and they're going to grow back. Uh-oh, when they grow back, they're going to produce the normal amount that a human should have had. Remember that vitamins are our human creation, okay? The animals out there are not going to GNC and buying them, you know. So we were self-assembling, self-sustaining. That means the bugs are making the normal amount. All of a sudden, you're going to have double the amount. And uh-oh, those same problems with pain and sleep interruption are going to come rushing back. And that's exactly what happened. So I'm thrilled with the idea that maybe we'll be able to bring the microbiome back because then I never have to worry about it again. They're going to make the bees and we're going to be all back reassembled as a normal human. That's exactly what happened. And it only takes three months. So D, a D level over 40, which means... A D that never drops into the 30s, the what is considered to be normal now. And I'm saying that because we really didn't start to lose our microbiome as a global pandemic until the 1980s when we went indoors. That means before, you know, so you don't have to have an exact D level. You just have to have enough D down there to keep them happy. And then you actually give the growth factors they need, B100. You do that for three months. The right bugs come back, but then your sleep and your pain comes back. So that was a consistent, and it's continued to be a consistent observation. So the first, the first concept is we are suffering from D deficiency that gives many independent problems, including sleep and all sorts of other things, but is accompanied almost always by losing the microbiome. That means most of our problems with sleep, with ADHD, with autism, with developmental delay, with uh, autoimmunity and inflammation are a product of losing the microbiome and not having D. And those two have to be together. I don't think D by itself is ever really the problem because the D was supposed to go up and down throughout the year. The, The next piece is slightly different. Okay, if that happened to me, then how do I bring the microbiome back? And it is my belief that it's done very easily. You do not have to give a new supply of bacteria. There are some of the healthy, happy guys still down there. They just aren't the predominant species anymore. And then what you have to do is give it D and give it B50. It turns out most of the people after I started doing this Remember, we had been on D alone for two years that made us develop this profound deficiency. When you give B100 to someone who does not have that profound deficiency, who's just walking in with their daily headaches, you take a dose that's too high and it will screw up your sleep. So most of the people that walked in with not much in the way of medical problems, just daily headache or epilepsy or the routine things I'm seeing, they would wind up taking B50. But a combination of B50 and D together for three months brings back the microbiome. Then you have to stop that large dose B source or you will start to get badly off again. That is fascinating. And you touched on so many things here that I love that you addressed that B vitamins are not entirely water soluble. This is something that has been taught for years now. And I learned this myself unexpectedly years back when I had a functional medicine doc run a nutrient vitamin tissue analysis. I forget the exact name of the test. And prior to seeing this doctor, I was doing this adrenal fatigue protocol where you take large amounts of vitamin B5, pantothenic acid, 
And my B5 levels uh, on this tissue analysis were literally off the charts. As you know, there are some adrenal protocols that recommend you take high doses of B5. And so I was taking something like 400 milligrams daily for close to a year. And when I took this test, I hadn't taken it in months. But that lab result there told me that B vitamins seem to be fat-soluble, unlike we've been told for years and years. And it looks like your own findings are saying the same thing. I, wanna, I just want to add something, Mike. Someone decided to simplify these ideas and say that there are fat-soluble vitamins and there are water-soluble vitamins. That's really the wrong way to think about it because they then made these conclusions like D is a fat-soluble vitamin. It's not a vitamin. It's never been a vitamin. It's not a nutrient. It is something you make on your skin. It's a hormone. And it's true that it's made from cholesterol. It's true that when you use it in the experiment lab, it's fat-soluble. It's true that B5 is water-soluble in the, in the lab. But that doesn't matter. We've then made all these conclusions, like it'll never hurt Mike to take these huge levels of B5. That's incorrect. Wow. So this paradigm is completely off, is what you're saying. It's completely wrong. In fact, the most place we're being tortured with this misconception is that because D is a fat-soluble vitamin, we make it in the summer and we use it in the winter. That is completely wrong. It, we don't store it. We don't have, if we stored it, we would make it in the summer and then we would use it in the winter and there would be no difference. We would never be able to hibernate. There is a winter D state, which is low. Then there's a summer D state, which is high. That hormone allows you to have your fertility, your metabolism, and it allows the bears to gain, and us to gain weight and lie in a den for six months while they sleep longer. That means that one mistake of calling it a vitamin and then making these conclusory comments also means that we say things like, well, fat people need more D because it just dissolves in their fat. That is stupid. I'm sorry. I I'm just finally get to a place where, excuse me, this is the mo most important hormone in our body, and it's just going to go sit there in their fat, and the body just won't even know it's there. So it'll be stuck in their fat, but they won't be able to access it. That's be like saying, oh, testosterone is actually a fat-soluble chemical too. Does that mean it just gets lost in the fat, and the body doesn't even know it's there? It's not that biology is that stupid. We humans try to simplify things to make it easy to pass the test at the end of biology class. And then we put it into these extremes, you know, that say, oh, she has to take 20,000 IUs a day for three years because she's obese. And because somebody's already written that it's dissolved in her fat, we forget to notice that it means that, oh, after three years, we have to drop the dose down. That means she was so profoundly deficient that she is absolutely using 20,000 IUs a day, which is a very high dose, for three years before her body actually gets replete and has to go down. It blocks our ability to observe. Right. Yeah, you're absolutely right on vitamin D not being stored in our fat cells because I know that for me, if I don't get outside or I stop taking supplements, I mostly try to get mine from sunlight. I don't go out. Uh, I don't take the supplements too frequently. But when I don't get that sunshine or if I stop 
supplements in the past, I'll find that my levels drop quite dramatically, sometimes as much as one IU per day, which is pretty significant. Plus, you'll feel different. You'll feel mentally different. You, once you start paying attention, if that's the only variable, you will notice that you feel different. And another thing you mentioned, which I've also heard before, is understanding that our D levels should be higher in the summer than in the winter months when we see less sunlight, of course, depending on where we are in relation to the equator, but that we should have lower levels during the winter months. So is it unhealthy to maintain higher vitamin D levels during the winter months? What's your opinion on that? That is an excellent question. One of the things that I want to convince everybody to do on their own is to think about this in an evolutionary perspective. Because what we're left with is we can't believe the experts, not because they don't care or because they don't read, but because there's a huge amount of controversy about this. And it, it would be a whole other hour for us to talk about that. But view these things through an evolutionary perspective. Always view humans as just one of hundreds of thousands of animals. They all have exactly the same biology. We think we're so special, we distinguish ourselves. I'm sorry, we're the same as every other animal. Now, if you look at the way our planet is set up, what this means is the cultures that lived at the equator actually did not have any big changes in their D levels from summer to winter. They just stayed high and they would tan. And generally they are darker skinned than the population that moved towards the north and south. So it's also interesting to notice that the people who lived at the equator are the cultures that made the most long-standing, amazing advances in civilization around the planet, in China, around the Mediterranean basin and the Mayans are all doing astronomy, advanced math, advanced written languages. What that means is you can make the assumption that their populations actually survived in multiple generations, because the way you make those steps is to live to be 70 years old and pass your education on to your son and your grandson and your great-grandson that you build on every single generation. That's how you make those advances. Now, it's not that the Norsemen didn't do great things, because they did, but you also have to notice that they have very white skin and they have red hair and they have these mutations that made them able to do these things. And by the way, their life was outdoors. So it was cold as can be, but what they were a fishing community and they lived outside. And every animal lives outside, unless you were specially made to be nocturnal. So <clears throat> yes, when you were living in, let's say Oklahoma, so my husband's family, there would be a, a relative change. And what we got in the habit of doing is sleeping more in the winter and we gain a little weight in the winter. But as soon as March, April, May comes and you can actually get out of the house, you start tilling the land. And at the time that we were still healthy, we were actually tilling with behind a horse. And you were still in the sun from when you went outside and the sun came up until the sun went down. Aside from a little nap in the middle of the day, you completely lived outdoors. And that was the natural state for all human beings. You can make actually an interesting argument that if when we, since we're bald, 
we may have actually had a slightly different outcome than the Neanderthal because we don't have much hair. And most animals actually get their D from licking their fur. So that if we weren't in the habit of licking our skin, that there may, we may have actually outcompeted the Neanderthal just by sleeping better and be more, being more effectively reproductive. Now, the next question is, does that mean that I should try to maintain my D level in the 40s in the winter and in the 60s in the summer? It depends on what you're trying to do. So it's ext- you know, you, we're going to have to come back to do another meeting about the bees. But what, what you're really trying to do that's different than nature is you are biohacking with these chemicals. I don't care what it is. As, as much as I love D and I think it's have, helped me change my life, you cannot get away from the fact that you're biohacking with it. You're making it in a way that is not exactly being outside. Now, what that means is you better be careful about what you want to accomplish when you step into these supplements. Because what I'm trying to do is ask, why are all these young, healthy people coming in here with complaints that they shouldn't have at age 32 with a terrible sleep study? What has happened? As far as I'm concerned, that's an abnormal population. It's the norm now, but it's not right. That means my question was, is there a D level that makes the people with a sleep disorder have better sleep? That does not necessarily mean that a D of 60 is the ideal. It may well be a good place and where we have to go in order to make up for the damage that happened over the last 30 years when my D was way too low, okay? That also means that when you're looking at this in a newborn child, you don't think that 60 is the ideal. What you want is to know if the mom's D is 60 and she's sleeping through the night and the baby is born sleeping perfectly. In fact, the baby starts to sleep and wake with mom at 30 weeks, which is the ideal. Then you do the baby's D level and what you'll find is the baby's D level is in the 40s, as are most of the hunter-gatherers that they've actually measured the levels in. So that could mean that we could screw people up that are normal who don't need extra D by not thinking of it in the right way. Yeah, that's very interesting. So your, your original question was, should I try to make my D float up and down? No, because what you're really doing with this, you are biohacking with a very strong chemical, but what you're trying to do is always say, is whatever I'm doing, whether it's B's, D's, iron, or whatever, is that making my sleep better? Because every single one of these chemicals has also the potential to make your sleep worse. And it's interesting that you point that out. I have read that the disease metrics in the more northern latitudes versus equatorial region, especially in diseases like cancer, you see a lot more of that the further you go north of the equator. And it doesn't seem to matter what part of the world you're in. And I can't help but think that um, vitamin D status has a part in that. Now, and, and one other really interesting development in the last 40 years, there are three ways to get D deficient. One is not to go outside. But the second is to be smart, motivated, and get an education and have a profession. And then, where are we doing most of those professions? We're no longer digging in the dirt. We usually move inside. The third way is to become pregnant because every single pregnancy sucks up your vitamin D. There's a really interesting piece that's a historical piece from 1925 that I'm using in my lectures now, 
where the guide describes that vitamin D deficiency is really a, and he's writing about rickets. We don't use that name anymore, but we need to start doing it because rickets was described two or 300 years ago as a colicky baby. You know, there, there are all these really moving descriptions and those kids are coming in for early care in dentists and medical offices, but we're not being told to look at them through that lens. But he's describing how this was a disorder that was exclusively Northern European or large cities where it was clear that they had lower sun exposure. But if you looked at it in India, it was fascinating that in India, in the lower castes, he's writing this in 1925, the lower castes where the woman takes her baby out into the field, where they're still digging in the dirt, they had no incidence of rickets, where the more educated, indoor-living, higher castes did. And that's 100 years ago. And I feel like maybe we're a little behind here in the U.S., because I know in other countries, they recommend lab ranges for healthy D levels that are actually much higher than ours. I've seen some countries recommend 55 as a recommended upper limit versus, uh, sorry, a recommended lower limit versus 30 here in the U.S. I would love to know which country that is because it's interesting that a lot of the Norwegian or the <clears throat> Danish, Finland, etc., have a lot of the publishing about D, but they picture 30 to 40 as being normal because everyone in their population is normal. Mm, their level of alcoholism suggests that that's not normal. It was actually Canada. Someone showed me that. Oh, amazing. I want to Now, one of the problems with that is if you look at that like at that again, 55, if it's done in nanomoles per liter, is a totally different range. So the British Commonwealth countries are using different units. So you need to look back and see if they've written it as anything below 55 nanomoles per liter, which really puts it at about 22-hour units. Well, those details I don't have, but maybe I can gather those details and we can um, have you back on a future episode to discuss this. I would love that. There's a huge argument in the literature right now, Mike, that just the most recent ones, the medical establishment, there's a lot of question as to whether or not we should be paranoid or not. I prefer not to be. I really just think that, but this is a very hot topic. So you, you ask really good questions. You're extremely thoughtful. I would love to come back to talk more in depth about what the current controversies are and why you can actually read the medical literature. If you don't go deeply enough in the article, you will be completely led astray because they're still treating D as though it's a public health problem. That would be like saying, okay, well, thyroid is a public health problem. Why don't we just put thyroid hormone over the counter at CVS? Like, they don't do that for good reasons. Why don't we just put testosterone on the shelf? We have to lock up testosterone when it's in a doctor's office because we found that people do not know how to use it. It's dangerous to use these hormones without knowing what you're doing. And to be frank, we know so little about vitamin D and its effects. Its effects are like a rainbow of effects. We also make a rainbow of different kinds of Ds on our skin. That is not commonly acknowledged. The literature is extraordinarily smart and excellent. This one, neuro this one guy who's working out of a, a dermatology department, which is fascinating, 
who's a Polish guy who is just a brilliant researcher who's been in the U.S. for like the last 20 years, has done an amazing set of studies that we could spend a whole hour on why it's important. Because it turns out that the D that we're taking by mouth when we're trying to mimic what we're doing is not the same kind of D. There are multiple kinds and they all have slightly different effects. And if we're really exposed to all the wavelengths of light, there are going to be interactions between the infrared wavelengths interacting with some of these other forms of D. There turns out there's more than just the vitamin D receptor. There's another receptor that actually recognizes these other forms of D, and you can measure all these in the human. Is anybody doing that? No, nobody's paying any attention. What that means is you and I are like, I'm sorry, I don't want to spend my whole life thinking about vitamin D. I got other things to think about, okay? What, what the final message is, going outside is not exactly the same as having a, a supplement of D. That means you should spend as much time outdoors as you possibly can if you want to gain the healthful impact that you need because it's not one like wavelength it's multiple wavelengths definitely and, and i know we're running short on our time so we should probably wrap up dr gomanak but it's always fun to have you on and i hope you'll come back you have such good questions you're very thoughtful well i appreciate that and please do send me more of your research so we can dive into more of this stuff next time we have you on oh i'll, I'll send you a whole bunch of stuff you'll be sorry you said that <laughs> well i look forward to it well thanks again dr gomanak okay Thanks, Mike. That'll do it for this edition of the podcast. Make sure you subscribe to us and check us out online at naturalmanpodcast.com where you can check out our other episodes. Until next time, my name is Mike C. Stay healthy. This has been the Natural Man Podcast. Subscribe to our podcast for more episodes. The Podcast Super Friends is a monthly meeting of five podcast producers. Hi, I'm Catherine O'Brien from Branch Out Programs in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I'm John Gay from Jagged Detroit Podcasts. I'm Matt Kundle from the Sound Off Podcast Network. I'm David Yes from Pod 617, the Boston Podcast Network. And I'm Johnny Peterson from Straight Up Podcasts. Together, they form the Podcast Super Friends, an alliance of podcast masterminds sharing best practices, insights, and discussions to help make you a better podcaster. Follow or subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or at soundoff.network. I'm Matt Kundle, host of the Sound Off Podcast, the show about podcast and broadcast. Since 2016, we've been speaking with amazing people who have populated your ears for decades. Legendary broadcasters, research wizards, talent experts, podcasters, voice talent, almost 400 stories, all for free. Subscribe or follow the Sound Off Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at soundoffpodcast.com.